Please continue to stand and turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled to the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, a times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Here ends the reading of God's word. Good morning. Happy Father's Day, dads. I'm sure you call your dad today. Please open to the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. What I want to do this morning, uh, last week I gave an introduction to the book of Revelation. Today will be introduction number two of the book of Revelation. There's an outline for you. You see seven sections there. 
I'm going to give a rather lengthy introduction, and then we'll get to those sections. I want to begin by reading the prologue to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud in the, word, the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Please join me in prayer. Holy Father, we come before you thankful, forever grateful for the price that was paid on our behalf that we would be made righteous in Christ, having our sins removed from us as far as the east is from the west, granting us by your grace faith to believe. Lord, I ask now anyone here who is not a true believer who does not know you, that today would be the day that you would, be, you would come to know them intimately. That you would rent the veil of blindness, take out a heart of stone, replace it with a heart of flesh. And may your dear people today here come to a greater, richer understanding of our victorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through the revelation of Jesus Christ, for the glory of his name and the good of your people. Amen. One theologian and pastor writes that once when he was teaching through the book of Revelation that he noticed many children in the congregation. I want you children to read Revelation too, I said. If you're too young to read it for yourself, have your parents read it to you. You too can understand it. In fact, you may understand it better than your parents. A boy about 12 years old came up to me afterwards. I know exactly what you mean. A short time ago, I read Revelation and I felt that I understood it. I thought to myself, praise the Lord. I read it just like a fantasy, except I knew it was true. I thought, precisely. This story was so good that I began using it when I taught Revelation in seminary classes. A student came up to me afterward, you know that 12-year-old boy? Yes. I know exactly what he meant. 
I can remember reading Revelation when I was about 12 years old and understanding it. I've been understanding it less and less ever since. Tells another story that a group of seminary students finished playing basketball in a gym and they noticed the janitor in a quarter reading a book. What are you reading, they asked. The Bible. What part of the Bible? The Revelation. The seminary, seminarians thought that they'd help this poor old soul. Well, do you understand what you're reading? Yes, I do. They were astonished. Well, what does it mean? Jesus is going to win. <laughs> and beloved, he has won. He's the conquering hero of the book. He is victor. He is king. He's Lord of glory. He's won and he's winning and he will consummate that victory finally and forever. The Bible divides history into two ages or two eons of time. From the Old Testament perspective, those days were called the present age, which was evil. And the other was the age to come, which would be the time of Messiah. The two ages were sometimes portrayed in terms of night and day. And the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus Christ is the Messiah for which the Old Testament saints awaited. And therefore, the new age began when he came. Upon his arrival, the sun would rise, the day would break, and the world would be flooded with light. In the prologue of John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 4, for in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. He was the dawn of the new era, beloved. He did usher in the day. He boldly proclaimed the break-in of the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 4, he came out saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And again, that is an exaggerated statement of eminence, meaning it is here now. Because he's the king. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, since Jesus is the kingdom, the kingdom has come and it is coming. The new age has arrived. At the same time, the old age has not fully come to an end. As John, the author of Revelation, put it himself in 1 John 2.8, the darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining. The Bible teaches that for the time being, the two ages overlap. Unbelievers belong to the old age. They're still in darkness. John says in John chapter 3, verse 19, and this is the judgment. That light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. I'm reminded of this every time I perform a funeral where there is a majority of unbelievers. When it comes time for me to give the message, the gospel, the good news that there's someone who will take away your sins, 
They hate him. They hate him. This place was filled with people yesterday. When I began to talk about the glory and the goodness of the light that has come into the world, there was frowns, there was disdain, and people got up and walked out, and that's exactly why we pipe sound into the bathroom and in the hallways. (laughs) But on the other hand, those who belong to Jesus Christ have been transferred into the new age, into the light. He rules and he reigns through his people that are indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 2.9, why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into this marvelous light. So in Christ, we already taste the powers of that coming age. Hebrews 6.5, Because we have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Clearly then, beloved, Jesus was and he is the age to come. We see then that there is more than one aspect to his kingdom reign. There is, beloved, the already and the not yet. Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, he was being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. And he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, take heed, look, 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 the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom rule in the kingdom reign of Christ arrived with Christ already, but has not yet been fully consummated. Not until the second coming when the new Jerusalem would descend from heaven. And you, if you're a believer, will dwell on this earth forever. This is a resurrected earth. It's a new heaven and a new earth. That was the intention, the intention. Man created in his image to dwell and extend Eden around this glorious globe. But man sinned. Many Christians mistakenly believe the kingdom doesn't come until the very, very, very end. Even the Lord's own disciples expected his ministry to indicate the end of all things. Commencing with the end of Jewish oppression by Rome. They believed that the coming of Messiah would bring about the end of the age-old promises and that the full consummation would be made manifest then. In other words, they believed that the already would entirely be engulfed by the not yet. In one sweeping cataclysmic motion, but that, however, was not the plan. From the outset of Jesus' ministry, he began to reveal that he had inaugurated only one aspect of this kingdom. He was preaching in his own hometown in Nazareth. While worshiping in the synagogue, Jesus stood up and he read from the scroll of Isaiah. And Luke records this for us in chapter 4, beginning of verse 18. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops. He stops. 
And he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, Jesus omitted a very significant portion of Isaiah's prophecy, and that was, and the day of vengeance of our God. That's where he stopped. So instead of arriving to earth with salvation in his right hand and judgment in his left, the Lord seems to show here that his plan would only be halfway fulfilled at his first coming. leaving the remainder of Isaiah's prophecy to be finally carried out at some future period. This is the very reason that John the Baptist was so depressed and confused when he was locked up in Herod's jail. Remember, he's the one that referred to Jesus as Messiah. He's the one that said, behold the Lamb of God. He came preaching the kingdom. Matthew 3, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. But even so, things did not quite evolve as John the Baptist had thought in his finite mind. He was a man, he was a great man, he was the greatest of all men born of women, but he didn't get the scriptures down correctly. He was awaiting the consummation of the kingdom of God in one cataclysmic moment, just as the disciples were. And when, he didn't, when it didn't occur that way, John became discouraged. He became doubtful. He became confused. And he sent a question from jail to Jesus. Are you really the one? Or shall we look for another? Jesus replies with the word, the blind see, the deaf hear. The kingdom's been inaugurated. The Apostle John tells us that everything to be read in this revelation is to be occurring soon, he said to the original recipients. The time is near, and it is in fact taking place now because he is referring to an age. He's referring to an epoch of time, an epoch known as the last days. Are you with me, beloved? It is a mistake for us to think that the end times is being something that remains exclusively to the far-reaching future. It's a mistake. When Paul, for instance, refers to the last days, it may seem natural to apply the term to the days immediately preceding when Christ comes in glory those last days between the inauguration of the kingdom and its final ultimate expression. But it is now the beginning of the end. It was then the beginning of the end. And that is why the New Testament is so very clear that we are now living in the last days. The time between the first and second coming of Christ, that is exactly how the New Testament writers speak of the last days. Peter came in at Pentecost while quoting quoting Joel, and he said, this is the last day, Acts 2.17. Hebrews begins, that glorious book of Hebrews, chapter one, verse two, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. So it is coming, it is soon, and it, beloved, is here. 
the, the inaugurated kingdom that will one day be consummated, it's between those times that all the events of Revelation, they have occurred and continue to unfold in one form or another. Question. Were the original recipients of the Revelation... John's audience, the recipients of this letter, were they facing a real beast? Were they facing a real false prophet? Were they facing a real antichrist? All of which was generated by the power of the dragon? Answer, absolutely and undeniably, yes. Yes. Will Christians in our time face real beasts? Real false prophets? Real antichrists? which are an expression of the dragon's assault against the church? Answer, yes, we are and we will. And we have. Look at church history. Will those Christians living just prior to the consummation of that kingdom, like I'm talking the day of, (laughs) the week before, whenever that is, will they face a real beast, a real false prophet, and a real antichrist? Answer, yes. John, in his own letter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, little children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. It was the last hour in John's day. It was the last hour in Augustine's day. It was the last hour in Calvin's day. It was the last hour in Luther's day, Edward's day, Whitfield's day, Lloyd-Jones day. It's the last hour in our day. It is the last hour, and it will be the last hour, the literal hour before he returns in glory. Because the last hour is the period of all the of the already inaugurated in the not yet consummated kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. Are you still with me beloved? Thank you. It's here. It is now and it is therefore apocalypse now. Apocalypse doesn't mean some, you know, stuff falling out of the sky and stuff blowing up. Apocalypsis means the unveiling of, the revealing of, the, the, the tearing back of the tarp, so to speak, enabling you to see. It's not to frighten you. It's not to intimidate you. This book was written to understand. And the only ones that can understand it are God's children <clears throat> who are covered by the lamb, the blood of the lamb. Every chapter of Revelation applies to the church now just as it applied to the church of the first century. It was not written to us. The letters to the Corinthian church, they were not written to you and to me. They were written to them, but they were written for us. For us. The revelation was written to the seven churches in Asia, nevertheless written for us and written for every Christian from that time until he comes in glory. Most of of us have been taught differently. Most end time books are wild, they're fanatical because they interpret the Bible in light of movies, in light of novels, in light of charts and other crazy scenarios. 
but they're not interpreted with the Bible. How do you interpret the Bible? We interpret scripture with scripture. Even those books, those fictional books that preface their writings as fiction have indeed become the eschatological guidepost for most American evangelicals. Eschatology means last things. As for Revelation, we are living in it now while the king of glory is on the throne. (laughs) Victor. His kingdom has been installed and is yet to be ultimately carried out to the fullest at the coming of Christ. That's why we're looking for who, beloved? We're looking for Christ. Don't go looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for Christ. As I said last week, I've seen more Christians fill the halls of someone who's going to come teach on Antichrist than teaching on Jesus Christ. Can we be sure of the fulfillment of the new creation? John says absolutely, without a doubt, without question. That is precisely what the book of Revelation depicts for us. It's the kingdom that has come and is coming. And with that in mind, let's now outline the structure of the book of Revelation. Now, outlining a book of the Bible is simple if you're outlining, say, for instance, the book of Ephesians. And if you were with us four years ago, that's exactly what we did. Chapters one through three are all doctrinal. Chapters four through six are duty, doctrine and duty. You could also outline it as chapters one through three being the position of the sinner that's saved by grace. You're positionally righteous in Christ. When he looks at you, he sees his son because... Your faith is in Christ alone. Therefore, chapters four through six are practice. Because of your position, this is how you live. Okay? Very simple. The book of Revelation is very different. And we must keep in mind as we read through the Revelation some interpretive keys for our understanding. A little review from last week. Three main principles that must be adhered to in order to rightly interpret the revelation. It's not the revelations of, but the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation is characterized by three literary styles. Number one, it is a letter. It's an epistle. Just like Ephesians was an epistle or Philippians or Romans, it is an epistle. It's a literal letter written to a particular audience to address their real-life situations and the imminent circumstances that they faced. So therefore, revelation cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. Number two, revelation is a prophecy. It both foretells the future while at the same time foretells the already declared truth of Almighty God, while it provides consistent allusions, consistent allusions to the Old Testament. No direct sightings of Scripture, but allusions that are clearly written in the Old Testament like the moon turning to blood and the sun being darkened like sackcloth. That's Old Testament imagery. So we have to go to the Old Testament and read the context, what's being defined here, judgment. Not a blood literally turning to, not a moon literally turning to blood or a sun literally turning to sackcloth, black sackcloth. Thirdly, Revelation is apocalyptic literature. It is a genre of, 
of literature that seeks to communicate, beloved, symbolically. We read the Bible, we read it literally wherever possible, amen? Not in its literal wooden sense. As I said last week, Jesus said, I am the door. He's not made of wooden hinges, right? That's figurative language. So wherever we read the Bible, wherever possible, read it literally. So we read it in its literary, literal sense. When we read the apocalypse, we read it symbolically wherever possible. Apocalyptic language was a standardized style that everyone knew and everyone understood in their day. For instance, numbers seek to convey something very significant in this book, such as the number seven. (laughs) In it, we see seven churches, seven golden lampstands, seven stars, seven torches, seven spirits of God. Seven eyes, seven seals, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven plagues, seven mountains, seven kings, seven blessings. It's 12 apostles, 12 tribes, 12 crowns, 12 gates, 12 pearls, 12 gems, 12 foundations. It's 24 elders, 144,000 people, 10 horns, 10 kings, 10 days. Very symbolic language. Jesus has 10 heads. Symbolic, amen? So, Revelation is a book filled with symbols in motion. You see numbers, you see colors, you see animals, and you see these beasts. So, this revelation is a revelation that was seen. This was something that was shown to John. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So we must read this book on its terms, not on our own presuppositional terms, amen? The basic structure of Revelation follows the form of what is known as recapitulation in a progressive and at the same time a parallel form, which I'll explain. That is that the book is constantly covering the same ground over and over again, returning to survey it from a different vantage point, a different camera angle, if you will. And on occasion, further insight is provided on those different scenes of the same glorious event between the first coming and the second coming of the lamb who was slain. Now, if, as you simply read through the book, I'd encourage you to go home and read from chapter four on. After the, he addresses those seven churches, read from chapter four on, and you'll see the event of final judgment and final salvation, that it repeats itself seven times. Now, many people have trouble with Revelation because they, they approach it from the wrong end. And again, Vern Poitras points out, if we start asking, you know, what do the bear's feet in Revelation 13.2 stand for? You know, turning our focus on the minutia, the details of Revelation, we'll ignore the big picture and we'll get in trouble right from there. Revelation is known as a picture book, not a puzzle book. It's a picture book. James Stuart Russell referred to Revelation as don't look at it like a telescope, but look at it like a kaleidoscope. Remember kaleidoscopes? Whoa, that's cool. (laughs) That's the Revelation. 
Now, generally speaking, we could divide the book into two equal halves, okay? Chapters 1 through 11 is reviewed from, is, is viewed rather from the perspective of the conflict of the church on earth. From an earth perspective. Chapters 12 to 22 cover the same conflict against the backdrop of the ultimate heavenly conflict because in chapter 12, this veil is pulled back and you're given a glimpse into the heavenly realm, the cosmic scene that's going on that is causing the conflict on earth against Christ in his church. The reason that people gritted their teeth yesterday when I talked about the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ dying for the sins of many. It's revealing the heavenly battle. Now, Revelation is made up of seven sections that examine the entire period of time between the first and second comings of Jesus, each stressing a different angle or emphases, okay? Known as the recapitulation principle, from where we get the term recap, or to sum up once again to be seen from a different angle. The number seven, symbolic, for completeness, fulfillment. There's seven days in one week. So let's look at section one. Section one is made up of chapters one through three. You have a prologue, you have the introduction, and specific instructions to seven historical churches. Forming the first of seven sections. Seven historic churches that also represent the church as a whole throughout redemptive history, which bears the resemblance of the entire church, as we'll see as we look at each one of those specific churches. So by addressing these seven, he addresses the whole church to this very day. Seven, as I said, is a number of completeness. So here he addresses the church worldwide by means of these seven. That's section one. In section two, we have chapters four through seven. In chapter four and five, we see the vision of the heavenly throne room. In chapter six, there's the opening of the seven seals. And then in chapter seven, you have the sealing of the 144,000. Beginning with, check, check this out. What have we been singing about all morning? Beginning with the slain lamb of God. And his victory over death, now ruling in, in heaven. And then the section ends, beloved, with final judgment of the world. Final judgment of the world. You see salvation for God's elect and condemnation for Christ's rejectors. Notice, for instance, in chapter 6. Beginning in verse 12, what we see in these verses is final judgment from the perspective of those that perish. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth, the moon became like blood. There's that figurative language again. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. I just read that from Psalm 46 yesterday. 
Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come who can stand. Now when we look, same section, we look at chapter 7, verses 9 to 17, we see final judgment again revealed from the perspective of God's elect. After this I looked to behold a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, nation, from all tribes of the people and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped. Verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd, will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Another principle in understanding the book of Revelation is that these symbols in motion reveal for us that things surely are not as they seem. (laughs) Things as we see them are not always consistent with how God sees them. We can all say amen to that. We're called to renew our mind what? Daily with the word of God. We don't want to look within self for truth. Then you'll really be messed up. Truth comes from outside of us. It comes from the sovereign Lord of glory to us, not within us. Our hearts are corrupt, deceitfully wicked. Now, in chapter 5, John, thinking that when he turned, remember, they asked, you know, who's worthy to open the scroll? And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, verse five, the root of David is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And as John began to turn, looking for a lion, a lion of the tribe of Judah, instead, what does he see? Verse six, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. He is the lamb slain. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So part of the reason Revelation uses symbols is to show us that what we see with earthly eyes is not always consistent with what or how God sees. He's a conquering lion because he became a lamb. Slain. That's section two. In section three, we see chapters eight, through 11, those are the seven trumpet judgments. And at the end of chapter 11, we see again that this section also culminates again with final judgment. Look at chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. When you get down to verse 18, notice the nations raged, by your wrath, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints of those who fear your name. 
Verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, of rumblings, of pearls of thunder and an earthquake and heavy hail. That's section three. When we get to section four, what's in view there are chapters 12 to 14. You see a woman ready to give birth. A male child is born, there's a dragon revealed, and then final judgment once again is released. Now we're going to come back to section four because there's a break in there that is very important. So hold that one, we'll come back to it. Jump to section five, which is made up of verse chapters 15 and 16, the bull judgments, which also culminate with final judgment. Chapter 16, verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Notice the language in verse 18. There were flashes of lightning, rumbling, pearls of thunder, and great earthquakes such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. And it goes on to say, ending in the destruction of all things. That's chapter five, or section five. Are you with me, beloved? Good, good. Section six. Chapter 17 to 19. They record for us the fall of Babylon and the fall of the beast. Ending once again with final judgment. Chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now he goes on to strike the nations in final judgment. Beloved, how many final judgments are there? There's one. There is one final judgment. When we get to section seven, we just see many pictures of it there. When we get to section 7, it's made up of chapters 20 to 22. And here's another snapshot of the same scene. The defeat of Satan and final judgment. Along with a new heaven and a new earth. Remember that progression? You see these parallel pictures? And here's a little progression of the new heaven and the new earth. So, do you see how these sections overlap and they're not chronological? Consider, for instance, chapters 8 through 11 and chapters 15 and 16, which are the seven trumpets and the seven bowl judgments, which is section 3 and section 5. Notice this. As you simply read through them and you see what's affected by the trumpet judgments and what's affected by the bowl judgments, they're identical. It's the earth. It's the sea, it's the rivers, it's the sun, it's the pit of the abyss, it's the Euphrates River, and then the seventh bowl and the seventh trumpet is the second coming of Christ and final judgment. So these judgments affect the exact same thing, depicting judgment, the judgment of God from one perspective with trumpets and the judgment of God from another perspective with bowls poured out. Both affect the same things. It's simply recapping the same event with a different emphasis. That's all it is. What's also interesting is section five. 
chapter 16, verse 14, describes the dragon, here it is, gathering the nations for battle, okay? Now, this is a general description, beloved, of the battle, not another battle. In the original, there is a definite article here, which would read as follows. He goes and assembles them for English translations, it says battle. In the original, the definite article claims for us that he assembles them for the battle. On the great day of God the Almighty, the battle, not another battle. Another section, section 6, chapter 19, verse 19, the same wording, same definite article. To make or wage the war against him who was sitting on the horse, same battle described in chapter 16. Another section, section 7, chapter 20, verse 8, Satan will come out to deceive the nations, to gather them for the battle. That definite article is the same in chapter 16, chapter 19, and 20, and it emphasizes the battle. All describing the same thing that leads up to the, to, to the very same events. Not different battles, where after a future thousand years, there will be another battle from which he will deceive the nations again. I mean, why after all would we interpret all other numbers in Revelation symbolically until we get to that number 1,000? or the number 144,000. This battle, the battle, is simply being emphasized again from a different camera view. That's what's fascinating about football these days. You can't get away with anything. You drop the ball before you hit the ground, it's a fumble. And if the ref misses it, one of the camera angles will get it. (laughs) You can slow it up to a microsecond up his knees down even though the inch the ball is an inch off the ground he's a fumble or he was down the ground caused a fumble and it cannot cause a fumble so play over this is the same battle beloved waged against christ and his people the same events from different angles now remember again number one Revelation is not to be interpreted in chronological order. And number two, it is symbolic literature. It's apocalyptic. Now, remember that break in chapter 11 and 12? Everything in the first 11 chapters deals, as I said, with the drama of church persecution from the vantage point of earth. Well, we're not being persecuted. Oh, yes, you are. Do you face trial? Do you face temptation? Does the church face the temptation to compromise today? Does the world and the ch- does the church face the temptation to accommodate man and please man and entertain man rather than herald the truth of Jesus Christ? Answer yes. As those that come here from around the world that are being persecuted physically, losing their heads and losing their children because they profess Jesus Christ, they say to American churches, we are praying desperately for you. Well, what do you mean? We should be praying for you and your persecution. No, we know who the church is over there. The problem is here. You don't know who the enemy is and how he comes in the back door. We know our enemy. We see him head on. 
you can't see your enemies. So the first 11 chapters depict persecution of the church from the vantage point of earth. When you get to chapter 12, the veil is torn back. And we see that the vantage point shifts where we begin to see the spiritual realities going on behind the veil and why the earthly struggles are there that the church faces. And here we see the cosmic realm of this war, beloved, which with the first century church would have understood very, very well. (laughs) We must not forget that. Now let's look at section four again. Chapters 12 through 14, a male child is born. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Who is that, beloved? That is Jesus Christ. Each of these seven sections, again, recaps for us the coming of Christ and the end of final judgment by Christ. Chapter 12 begins with the birth of a child. Chapter 14, verse 14, ends with final judgment. Now, chapter 12 serves as the hub, the nerve center, if you will, of the entire book of Revelation. This is the brain of the book to which everything else relates. A woman's about ready to give birth. Waiting between her legs is a red dragon ready to devour the child the moment it is born. The woman, who does she represent? The true people of God from throughout redemptive history. Remember way back in the Garden of Eden? God puts judgment Upon Satan, he says in chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There will be one that will be coming and he will crush your head, but in the process, he will suffer great physical persecution. That was the promise of Christ. Then from Eve onward throughout God's people to the very end, she'd be attacked. So the woman is not, as Catholic commentators suggest, Mary. The woman is not, as some of our dear dispensational friends believe, ethnic Israel. But rather, who this woman is is answered for us in verse 17. It's not Israel according to the flesh that's being described, but it's rather the Israel of God. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Because notice, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God. Those who keep the testimony of Jesus Christ. True believers, which is true Israel, whether they're ethnic Jews or not, Galatians 6.15 says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk in this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, upon the Israel of God. If you're in Christ and you're Abraham's seed, you're in Christ. That means you are the Israel of God, spiritually speaking. 
So he's not referring to Abraham's offspring. He's referring to Abraham's children who keep the commandments of God in Christ. Remember when Jesus was confronting the Pharisees in John chapter 8? He said, they're boasting, our father's Abraham, we're ethnic Jews. Jesus said, John 8, 37, I know you were the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. And then they answer, verse 39, Abraham is our father. That's what they kept saying. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. He goes on to say, you're of your father, the devil. Paul sums that mystery up in Romans chapter nine, verse six, when he said, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Now, once we understand the identity of the woman as believers, we can take rest in knowing that in Abraham's seed, and that's Jesus, beloved, the seed of Abraham is Jesus, that all the families of the believing world will be blessed despite persecution. Are you with me, beloved? This should be the most encouraging book of the Bible as we persevere. That's the woman. The child, the one who would rule the nations with a rod of iron, that is Jesus Christ. So, with the birth of Jesus Christ being described in chapter 12, reveals for us once again that revelation is not to be interpreted chronologically. Right in the middle of the book, there's the birth of Christ. Right in the middle of the book, chapter 14, there's final judgment again. Recapping the first and second comings of Christ. And then the dragon, of course, is Satan himself. So what is pictured here is a cosmic view of the ravaging attempt of the child by the dragon. And the defeat and the destruction of the dragon by the child. Don't miss that part. Therefore, the target of the dragon's anger becomes the woman. God's true people. It was initiated in the garden... And it was followed from the garden into the Old Testament by the persistent struggle between the serpent seed and the woman's seed that would lead to Christ. It began with Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob, Edom and Israel, Saul and David. All of which, beloved, was a mere shadow of the cosmic war which erupted at the birth of this promised child. So, what is revealed here in chapter 12 is the defeat and the destruction of the dragon by the child, Jesus Christ. Verse 9, notice, the dragon is hurled out of heaven to earth where he rages with anger, knowing that he's a defeated foe, his time is short. In John... The author, he wants his readers to know that regardless of the violent nature of the evil, then the evil won, the final victory has already been won, (laughs) W-O-N. Amen? He's a defeated foe. Notice verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them 
day and night before God, and they have conquered him. How, beloved? By the blood of the lamb. That was the victory. The lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. Conquered by the blood of the lamb. Satan has no power over you whatsoever if you are in Christ. End of story. Did you know that? Satan was stripped of his power at the cross. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 because of that resurrection victory. Jesus made a public spectacle of demonic forces. Even though, even though, the final expression of that victory has not yet again been fully consummated. There will be a new creation where all the, the effects of the curse will be removed. Satan, death, hell will be cast into the lake of fire. He's been cast down and chained. He can't do anything to you because you're covered by the blood of the lamb, the conquering hero, our victor, our Lord, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. We have not arrived at the final point of the lake of fire yet. Therefore, the purpose of revelation for the Christian is to encourage us to persevere to the end. In the midst of attack, beloved, you will face attack. You'll be mocked. People will laugh at you for following Jesus Christ. People may punch you, slap you. We have guys that share the gospel in love down at the beach, and I have seen people on camera raging gnashing their teeth, wanting to put their hands upon the throat of those that are there to give them good news. Your sins can be forgiven. Come to Christ. You can't do it yourself. He's the lamb that was slain. So the decisive battle has been waged. It has been won. This letter was, was written to provide exhortation for the church under attack. That's what it was written for. Written originally to Christians who were under hostile attack from physical, brutal assault to spiritual religious compromise and to the seduction of materialism, which you'll see when we get to the seven letters. So it's an encouragement. It's an encouragement to all of us that although it appears as though the world is winning, it's only appearing that way Let's look how God sees it. Although we feel weak, although we feel obscure, God's people, are they becoming extinct? Answer, no. <laughs> no. We can be certain that it is Jesus Christ who builds his church and the gates of Hades, beloved, will not prevail against her. Do you believe that today? <laughs> because it's been unveiled in picture form for us. Revelation is a picture book, as I said earlier. Poithra says again, don't try to puzzle it out. Don't become preoccupied with isolated detail. Rather, become engrossed in the overall story, the first and second coming of Christ, the already and the not yet. Give praise to the Lord, cheer for the saints, detest the beast, and long for the final victory. I added a bunch of stuff in there, just not myself. 
So the main emphasis, beloved, of Revelation is not chronological so that we can sit around drawing up last day's charts. It's not so that we can make end-of-the-world movies. I was at the movie theater, and my wife was talking to a woman who just watched the movie 2012, and I was getting ready to watch a chick movie with my wife. (laughs) (laughs) Which was very good, by the way. (laughs) Something about a poetry book or something, I don't know. (laughs) I don't remember the name, but it was good. My wife is talking to this lady. She professes to be a Christian. She was in tears when she saw the movie 2012. She doesn't understand this. And, and, and we're not mad about that, but I'm grieved about that. She's been taught to read this like a comic book and not a great encouragement. The war has been waged. The war has been won. Christ is the victor. We don't read this to, to insert newspaper events in between the lines of scripture, amen? Amen. So the main emphasis of Revelation, or last things, is an ethical one. If you notice in the beginning of the book of Revelation, blessed is he who hears, blessed is he who reads and those who hear, and keep these things. In other words, obey these things, because there's two roads, beloved. There's two roads. If you're on a middle road of indifference, you're on the broad road that leads to hell. You're either in Christ, covered by the blood of the Lamb, or you're not. You either think you're good enough to get to heaven and find favor in the sight of God or you've bowed at the foot of the cross. There's nothing else. Truth is not relative. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Period, end of story. I defeated death. I upheld the law. I laid my life down. I raised it up again. I'm ascended to the Father and I'm coming in glory. Repent and believe. Come. All you are burdened and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. I laid my life down for you. I was spit upon. I was mocked. I was ridiculed by those that I created in the first place. No man takes my life. I came to lay it down. The emphasis of the book of Revelation, because of what he has done, is an ethical one. If the church disappears somewhere in chapter 4, what is there to keep? You're going to be raptured. But the Bible doesn't teach a secret rapture. That came in 1830. When a guy by the name of uh, Edward something or another was in some uh, uh, service and someone uttered something in tongues about this secret rapture where Jesus comes and takes the church, goes away for seven years and comes back again. He's coming for you. You'll be caught up. He's going to keep on coming and he's going to judge the world. This right here. There's no second chance. This is it. This is it. You'll be raptured, all right, if you're living when he comes. You'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And all those who went before us, we'll be raised in the twinkling of an eye. And we'll be with him as he comes and keeps on coming. This is written that we might live more faithfully for Christ now. This is written that we might be driven to see the, inter- the eternal importance of our ministries from the people changing diapers with the children right now, ministering to your kids, to the people that clean these bathrooms, to the guy that preaches behind the pulpit. 
that we might love one another more fervently, not with this flippant sentimentalism, but true biblical love that goes back to the truth, that kind of love, that's what revelation is for, that we might purify ourselves because we are the bride of Christ, the bride for which he paid a ransom. He reconciled you back to himself. We are now ambassadors urging lost people, be reconciled to God. I beg you as Christ is urging you to be reconciled to him through me. That's what I did yesterday. I even told him that. (laughs) Who are you? Tell us that Jesus is the only way. I didn't say he did. Take it up with him. Because you will stand before him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. You will do that rejoicing, thankful and happy, or you will do it raging against him, gnashing your teeth against him with hateful disdain. It's one or the other. He's the Lord of glory. Jesus has won, and as the janitor said, he's going to win. There's nothing else to occur before his glorious return. If you're looking for some temple, literal temple to be rebuilt in Palestine, you're thinking about a wrong temple. He builds a temple made without hands. He is the temple. He is the king. He is the kingdom. He is the Israel. He is Israel. He's everything. He is the king of kings. He's the alpha and the omega. Question, are you kingdom children? Do you know the king? Better question, does he know you? He knows you, but does he know you intimately in a salvific sense? If you died today, would you go to heaven to be with the king? If not, I say this. You acknowledge Jesus Christ every day, whether you realize it or not. Every day you write a check. Every time you thumb through a calendar. Every time your computer turns on, you acknowledge Jesus Christ by the date. 2010 AD, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Well, he might be your Lord, but he's not mine. He either is or he isn't. He's Lord regardless of what anyone thinks. The question is, is he your Lord? Is he known by you as the lamb who was slain to cover me in my sin so that when God sees me, I can't say, look, look at my hands, I'm clean. He says, turn your hand over. You're filthy and you're wretched. Let me show you your thought life. Repent and come to Christ because my son came to die. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I turn you around and I place my son who's perfect and righteous through and through and I place him over you so that when I see you, I see my son. You're as pure as white because of my son, the lamb who was slain. That's our message. That's what we must be reminded of every day. He's the conquering hero of the book of Revelation. Don't be looking for the Antichrist. Look for Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the clarity of Scripture. We thank you for the joy of heaven anticipated. We thank you for our conquering king, the one who came, the lion of the tribe of Judah, 
victorious because he was a lamb slain in our place. Lord, I pray that you'll bless your people this morning with the truth and the glorious hope of the book of Revelation. May we be humble recipients of this glorious truth. Walking and reminding one another of the gospel and the victory of the gospel and all that you have provided and conquered on our behalf. There is no second chance. We're either in Christ or we're not. Thank you for saving wretches like us. For anyone here this morning, Lord, who does not know you, I pray that you would rent the veil of blindness, enable them to see, take out a heart of stone, replace it with a heart of flesh, that they would be graceful, humble recipients of the offer of eternal life that you provide through your son, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. Bless them, keep your people, strengthen them this week as they run the race with endurance, affixing our eyes on the king of glory who came, who died, having upheld the law, rose again, and will come back in any given moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with us for our final song. Jesus, I'm going to cross the gate.